This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein Go Go. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks for joining us for an hour of science. In the studio with me is Dr. Crystal. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You're looking pretty partied out. <laughs> Are you well? <laughs> oh, we did have a little bit of Christmas in July celebrations at our house yesterday. So, you know, I've got an enormous Christmas pudding to continue to eat for the next few weeks. <laughs> is that your, like, lunchtime food at work? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bring on the custard. Yeah, where is it? You didn't... <laughs> I should have oh, brought thanks some a lot. <laughs> you didn't bring any. And Dr. Ailey. Good morning. How are you? I'm well. Good. And you're... Uh, we were looking before. You're sporting a bag that has a, um, a little sort of weather I do. map on it. I know. It was given to me by a colleague. It's really cute. It's a little, like, scout badge for reading the weather. But, you know, the, the funny thing is it's completely wrong. <laughs> so, yeah, the actual weather map that's on the badge is uh, not what we would call physically realistic. It's uh, meteorologically mm. impossible. Yes, it is. Well, it's not impossible, but it's it's highly unlikely. Yeah. Is that, <laughs> but it's um it's very cute, though. And do you find that offensive? Like, when you look at it, are you slightly offended? Or are you no, I'm not offended. I'm just annoyed. Or, just I'm just annoyed. It's just like when you see all those DNA molecules that are going the wrong way. You just oh, kind right. of like, oh, again. Yeah, see, I don't know. pick that. I, I, no, I don't pick that. Guy, I don't pick yeah. that. And, and it's fair enough if it's in a shampoo yeah. ad, except it's not. But um, but if it's like in an ad for something that's actually like scientific or it's actually like, you know, on the front of a, of a publication or from a science institution, oh, yeah. you think you guys yeah. should have really checked that, you know, stock image before you put it on the front of your Yeah, well, that's release. what I would have thought for a badge that's about reading, reading the map. weather. Yeah. Like, you know, this is so to make sure that they can read a weather map correctly and, yeah, give, yeah. it's wrong. And so, it's, so you can imagine as a physics guy how I go sci-fi films. Yeah. I like, have. I just... Mm-hmm. I just park that degree that's, and enjoy. Are you one mention of disbelief, though? That's yeah, you have to. You have yeah. to. Yeah, but are you one of those guys that sits at the back of the cinema just yelling and going, go every time? No, it's funny because there's often there's often things in films that irritate me slightly. Like So films like um, Gravity, which had some amazing visual effects, which are very, very accurate, really good. But then there was a few things in it that just like, did the scientific advisor take a day off when you did yeah. that bit? Like, because the rest of the film is really good, yeah. and then there'd be one or two little things you think, geez, you could have got this almost perfect, but you you, you drop the ball on a it couple of really things. unnecessary to put that unsciencey bit in. Yeah, yeah, it's just because so much was they've obviously spent so much money and time getting it right, and then you know there's a little bit and it's, uh, yeah. Anyway, it's one of those things. <laughs> uh, but I, you know, yeah, I usually turn my science mind off. Given that I think two of the most unscientific films of all time being The Time Machine and Journey to the Centre of the Earth, yeah, and the book corresponding books are what got me into science. <laughs> you've got Fair to give, enough. you've got to, you know, give a little bit of uh, leeway, I think. Dr. Crystal, we should give people some news. Oh, there's a couple of little stories that caught my eye this week. One was, did you see um, that uh, the oldest ever uh, baby snake uh, fossil had been discovered in amber? It was this really oh, great really? story. Yeah, it's a, um, a piece of amber found in, a, uh, I think it was a grave or tomb site, uh, archaeological dig out of what is now Myanmar, um, which dates back to the Cretaceous period. So this baby snake that's been fossilised in amber is more than 99 million years old from the age of the dinosaurs. Um, and anyway, it was just like a, a really cute new New contribution to science that they'd never seen a a baby snake and mm. um, b um, it's the oldest one they've ever found. Presumably, that type of fossils much better preserved than yes. the normal, yes. you know, turned into rock type of fossil. You know, yeah. which people forget it's no longer the animal; it's been literally turned into and replaced by rock. Mm. Um, so they're able amber, to get a lot like, more better yeah. look at its vertebrae and be yeah. able to understand a lot more about you know the the way in which the snake um, uh, was fossilized and how it came to be. So yeah, it was just a little bit of uh, a news I saw this week. That's I thought cool it was one. quite cute. Yep. But then the other story that caught my um, I was around. Um, 
slightly more serious topic about the use of um, complementary medicine in cancer treatment and a very big study that um, was done using the National Cancer Database in the US looking at almost 2 million patients um, and looking for those who had um, adopted um, conventional cancer treatment mm -hmm. uh, and then looked at those who after having at least one engagement with conventional cancer treatment had then gone on to um, use complementary medicine um, only so or, um, or no had used complementary medicine and complementary medicine being sort of defined as an unproven treatment that had been administered by a non-medical professional. So not adjunct therapies, but, you know, that were, you know, recommended by your doctor, but by something that was unproven and uh, non-medically administered. Um, and it was actually, because, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there saying, well, you know, if it doesn't do any, it, it doesn't do any harm, like, give it, you know, give it a yeah. crack, you know, and it's actually saying, well, no, actually the use of this stuff can actually cause harm. And this mm. study showed that, um, that people who had gone on to, to use complementary medicines were um, placing themselves at greater risk of death, um, you know, with a twofold um, uh, uh, more likelihood of uh, a twofold greater risk of death um, and that these patients were more likely to refuse conventional treatment going forwards mm. or delay conventional treatment going forwards. Um, and the fascinating thing for me was what the demographic was who they identified in this cohort, that the people who chose complementary medicine were more likely to be younger, female, more affluent from higher socioeconomic backgrounds, higher levels of education um, and with private health insurance. Wow. And, so, yeah. and so it's interesting to think about this in the context Context of education and choice, um, because this demographic that they're looking at of people who were, you know, potentially putting themselves at greater risk of um, of, of dying over five, over the like five year kind of period, <laughs> you know, it wasn't that they didn't know or they they were, mm. or they couldn't mm. afford it or they, you know, in fact, quite the opposite. These are the people who you think would actually have a higher chance of doing better because they were, you know, potentially richer, more educated, more had more access, you know, in terms of private health insurance. So presumably the anti-vaccination group is a similar de demographic, I would have thought. It's interesting. And so it raises this idea of, well, you know, as we push towards empowering consumers and giving, or mm. well, not consumers, empowering patients, you know, as almost like consumers, like this consumerization of health where you are in charge of your own health, which on one hand comes with a huge amount of benefits, also comes with some risks potentially. Mm. Um, and what we're doing in terms of our delivery of healthcare and the options and the education and, you know, the engagement with the medical system to look at how to position conventional treatment. So the, the adverse outcomes, was that as a result of the complementary medicine or was it more that they would delay or did they not say? Um, it, it was it was a large um, cohort study which yeah. basically just um, split the two groups and they yeah. didn't they didn't go into what kinds of complementary medicine it was, yeah. but they, they, they did show that there was um, delay in that group mm. of uptaking and there was a higher instance of refusal. The interesting third part, which you didn't mention, which is probably not part of the study, is how complementary medicine sometimes interact with more standard medical care, you know, when people end up using both at the same time, mm. which can be, you know, lead to unexpected sort of outcomes. Yeah, no, I'm not sure if the study looked yeah. at, at any kind of contraindications of whether or not if you were taking a conventional therapy, whether or not an alternate therapy or, or a complementary medicine interfered with mm. that. Um, but it's also why some sometimes patients don't also don't disclose, you know, if they, when, when they say, when the doctor says, are you on any other medications? You mm. know, patients often, often don't say, oh, people don't often say, well, oh, I'm also using this herb 
herbal extract or you know mm. whatever else. So mm. yeah, it's um it, and going forwards, I think this will become an even greater issue. But it's also kind of even comes down to your everyday activities, like you know when you share stuff on Facebook that's just like you know um, about you know how you can just you know be have a positive attitude yeah. or like, yeah. you know or, or if you just like even <coughs> making recommendations about unproven therapies, um you know in social networks and stuff that you think, well what harm can it do? It's like well actually mm. there's more and more research starting to um, show that it is actually um, putting patients at greater risk. Yeah, opinion versus knowledge. Huh? Mm. Mm. Anyway, uh, very good. I I wanted to just mention uh, something that's coming up in August, um, and this will happen uh, within next probably three weeks, I think. But NASA will be launching their new Parker Solar Probe, which is so. This is a uh, it, it is interesting. You know, we've we've seen a lot of different probes go out to various parts of the solar system over the last sort of ten years, and you know, the Pluto you know, New Horizons mission is probably mm. one of the really big ones, exciting ones. Um, but this probe's going in the other direction. This probe is not going towards Pluto or the other planets. It's going towards the sun. And funnily enough, it's actually really quite hard to do this for mm-hmm. two reasons. One is, and we forget this, but Earth is moving, moving pretty quick around the sun. And in order to get to the sun from Earth, you kind of have to shed the Earth's um, velocity of momentum. So as you launch from Earth, you have to slow down relative to the Earth going around the sun so that you can kind of fall into the sun in a way. <laughs> now, surprisingly, this actually takes a lot more energy than than you might think. And and if you were to compare it to, um, like, say, for example, going to Mars, um, it actually, the, the launch energy required, so you need a pretty big rocket to do this because the launch energy required is 55 times what it takes to launch to Mars. Wow. Which people hear that and they go, what? That what? doesn't sound right. Don't you just fall into the sun? But no, you actually have to slow down. You have to, you know, shed the Put the, the massive brakes on. Yeah, put the brakes <laughs> on and, and, and fall back in. In much the same way that if you're in orbit around the Earth, the way you fall back into Earth is, you know, you start skimming the atmosphere. It slows you down and eventually, you know, you fall in. You have to do the same sort of thing with the sun. And so, yeah, 55 times what it would take to get to Mars, um, about two times what it would take to get to Pluto. And you probably remember that that was one of the fastest launches ever done from Earth. In fact, it might have been the fastest launch, I think, of, of a probe in order to get to Pluto. So this probe has to, first of all, be launched like an incredible speed. And so that that's tough. But second, this thing's going to skim through the corona. So this is the other sort of wow. atmosphere area of the sun. How does it not melt? That's a very good question, Dr. Ailey. <laughs> and that was something that, of course, until very recently has essentially not been doable by any probe. Because the sun is the hot. Sun, the sun is hot. That's a, that's a fair statement. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and in fact, the interesting thing is, is one of the things this probe is going to try and do is work out why the corona, which is the upper atmosphere, is so bloody hot mm. because the corona is in the millions of degrees range, mm. whereas the surface of the sun is not. It's literally, you know, in the tens of thousands of degrees range. And people really don't understand why this is. It's sort of like, hang on, all the energy the sun has produced at the, the sun's core mm. You would think, therefore, that as you get further away from the core, you would get cooler. But that's not the case with the corona. This atmosphere of the sun is really unusual. And we don't quite understand why it's so hot. So this probe is actually going to fly through that section and, you know, in a number of number of sort of cycles, and it will collect data. And on its way, I mean, getting getting to the sun is really hard. So in fact, it doesn't even go straight there. It actually the reason for this, you know, specific launch in August is that it needs to do a flyby of Venus to slow itself down even further. Mm. So they'll use a gravity assist from Venus to slow down. But it's but it's interesting. This thing is basically only able to do this now because the shielding and so forth and the electronics and so forth are such that essentially what it's going to do is use the energy from the sun in, in solar 
solar collected energy, convert it to electricity, help it cool itself down. So it's kind of like this big fridge, if you like, um, that will that will make it all work. One so massive it's, it's air conditioner. One massive air conditioner about the size of a car. <laughs> yeah, right. So it's not huge. It's not a, not a huge craft, but it's reasonable. Mm. And one of the things I like is um, the name of this um, uh, is named after the physicist Eugene Parker, who he was the first one to actually publish a paper theorizing the existence of the solar wind, you know, that thing we all take for granted now that gives us the auroras and blah, 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 and all this massive stream of particles and light that comes out from the sun. Well, it was only 1958 that that was actually proposed theoretically, so it's relatively recent. Anyway, Eugene Parker's been given the... The uh, yeah, naming of this. Uh, of this. Yeah. So it's launching in August. How long? And it's got to go, do a flyby Venus. How? When's it going to get there? Um, I think it's uh, it's about that's that's actually something I'm not oh, sure sorry. about. No, no, it's, it's it's a good question because I was trying to find that the other day and I couldn't find the 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 period. I think it's um. It's not that it's not Pluto long. No, no. but you <laughs> but kind of think you kind of think you always hear about the launch of these probes. Yeah. and you don't hear anything, and then like like you thought, how many years am I going to have to wait till I yeah, no, like find one, out? This one I was trying to find, and I couldn't on. find. I think because they haven't put the dates of because they don't know the date of launch yet. Oh, because it's yeah. uh, the minimum date will be the sixth of August. Yeah, right. So then it's be a little bit right. after that. But yeah, but I'll, I guess because you've got to wait until all the um, planets are in the right place as well. Mm. And, and for us, that's Venus and Earth. Yeah, yeah. At the moment, yeah. And how? Fab has the night sky been in the last couple of weeks? You've had five planets up oh, there. Yeah. It's Lining been up. amazing. And Mercury, I'm sorry, um, um, Mars has been so bright. Like it's just this red, orange, yellow you, dot in the sky. And you've got that, that beautiful winter winter clarity mm. in yeah. the sky when, you know, like it's it's always better in winter when um, because it gets dark earlier. No, and a friend of mine brought yeah. out his telescope and invited us all around. Oh, cool. And yeah, we're looking at all the oh. moons of Jupiter because they found a few more moons on Jupiter now, didn't they? They well, found four more. Oh, uh, was it last count? Like, <laughs> 60-something? Yeah. You know, last time I looked, it was like 63 or something. It was like that. Um, but yeah, yeah. so um, so it's been um, it's been a fantastic night sky for, um, for, for yeah. everyone in Melbourne. If you get out of the city. Oh, well, even in the city, no, it's not honestly, too bad. Standing in my driveway, yeah. I've been impressed by, uh, by how Mars looks. So, yeah, you can, yeah. you can, you, like five, you can see five planets with a naked eye standing in my driveway yeah. in Coburg. I'm pretty yeah. happy with that. Yeah, that's pretty cool. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. In the studio with us now on Einstein and Gogo is Marie Fan. She's from the School of Biological Sciences at Monash University. Marie, welcome to Triple R. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you in. We um, we saw your article, uh, your, your work that's come out in the last couple of weeks around the the male purple crown fairy wrens. Yes. And we, except for Dr. Ailey, who likes some weird chicken, we're, <laughs> we're big uh, big fans of fairy wrens here on Triple R. I'm on Team Wren. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> so first of all, give us a bit of a rundown of what the the fairy wren is, where you find them, you know. A, how are they going? They're endangered. They, you know, what, yeah. what's the deal with fairy wrens? So fairy wrens are found in Australia and New Guinea. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are eleven species, um, and they are found yeah in different parts of Australia. And I'm uh, studying the purple crown fairy wren, which is found in the monsoonal tropics of northern Australia, mm-hmm. so in the Kimberley region, which mm-hmm. is really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and the purple crown fairy wren is endangered, and okay. so we know that. It's mostly because of uh, habitat destruction, because of fire and um, cattle trampling the vegetation. Right, right. Now, you mentioned there are 11 species of fairy wrens. Yes. Um, how, I mean, what about the other 10? How are they doing? Because we, we see some of the, quite a lot of them down here outside yeah, of Melbourne, don't uh, we? Yeah, uh, so... The other ones in Australia are doing fine, okay. if I'm not mistaken. Mm. Uh, and then there are two in New Guinea. Um, so I'm not completely sure about this, right. but yeah. 
And can you describe the, the sort of birds for us? Because I think most people know what they are, but just for those who don't, what, what does a fairy wren look like typically? Well, it's a very small bird. Um, it's about uh, 14 centimeters long. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have this really characteristic tail that is uh, really up, up high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Breaking just up. hopping all around. Uh, yeah. So they're really cute. cute they are so cute. They are so cute. <laughs> they are pretty. And because I often see down um, near the organ pipes and that, the, the little mm. blue, the ones with the blue, I assume the males with the blue, the yeah. just really bright colored, gorgeous blue. Yes. Yeah, so in, in Victoria, tail. yeah, you find this uh, blue wren. Uh, mm. oh, it's called the superb pheren. Yep. Um, and yeah, the males uh, annually produce this striking uh, blue nuptial plumage. Um, so that's... When they have this blue plumage, it's easy to um, distinguish them uh, with females and that's juveniles. Right. So, so, and that, that's what you've been working on with the the purple ones is this yes. production of this plumage. Now, so it, first of all, you you said annually they're producing this. So this isn't part of their their standard colouring. This is something that they it's do. They seasonal. always have it. It's seasonal. Yeah, it's seasonal. So every year, all males. Um, um, change their brown head plumage mm-hmm. to this uh, colorful purple and black uh, nuptial plumage. Right. Um, but it's really like the timing when they develop um, this nuptial plumage is highly variable among males. So some males might start to turn into purple and black in May mm-hmm. uh, and some other might do it in February the following year. So there is wow. a really, yeah, uh, <laughs> large variation. And, and so now, just in terms of, you have to give us some sexual education here on the fairy rings. <laughs> how, how how do they interact in terms of mates and so forth? Because if they're producing this, what I'm trying to get a, a picture of is if they're producing this plumage, which is part of mating. Yes. But are they are they bonded to a single bird? How does that all work? Yeah, so um, they're what we call socially monogamous, mm-hmm. uh, which means that they form stable, uh, long-term pair bonds with a social mate. Yep. Um, so they share their territory, they live together. But um, in most parents, um, we know that they have high levels of sexual infidelity, which means that even though they have a social mate, they commonly um, seek extra partners. Right. Um, which is the case of the blue wren that you find here. Uh, but the purple crown pheren is very faithful in contrast. So oh, wow. it's very interesting <laughs> that even though it stays, it remains with the same mate, um, like the whole life. Um, it still takes the trouble every year to develop this uh, purple and black. Yeah, so that's pretty nice that, you know, you, 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 you're pair bonded. Yeah. And you're yeah. just like, I'll still put my good, my, my good tie on <laughs> once a year. <laughs> once date, a year. Night. date night. Except for those southern ones, they're just players. So why do they bother then? Like, you know, if so you, that's exactly the question of my PhDs to understand why uh, they bother to do so every year. Um, and in this study, we found that it has to do with showing off uh, social status and competitive strengths to other males. Right. So it's not generally um, seasonal plumages are assumed to um, attract, to be used to attract females. But it, in this case, it has to do with competitions between males. Mm. So you said that there's a huge range when they actually do this, you know, May to February or something like that. Do you know what the, the catalyst is for them changing? Is it just, you know, Mrs. Wren says, get your tie up? <laughs> <laughs> what is it? So What's the, the catalyst? Perfect we don't really know. Um, but 
for example, in the Super Ferran, the Blue Ren, um, there is a correlation with the level of testosterone. So we don't mm. know what is the, co- the cause and the effect, mm. but there is a correlation. Um, but in the purple conferring, it doesn't seem to be the case. So it's an unusual species compared to the other ferrans. Um, so, yeah. Mm. And is there any correlation between, I suppose, <laughs> trying to work out how to ask this politely, <laughs> but you... you Presumably, there are some birds that have a more impressive purple, you know, coloration. Do they correspondingly have larger sort of territorial areas or is there any aspect of the social interaction between these birds that's directly related to the just how nice they are looking? Well, like, so when you... um when you look at seasonal plumages, you can yep. look at different aspects. The timing, so when mm-hmm. do they turn into purple and black, uh, the quality of the color, and the extent of nuptial plumage. Right. Um, so in terms of timing, uh, it's the first thing that I studied and I didn't find anything. Mm. There was no correlation with how early they develop this nuptial plumage and how well they do with females. Um, but uh, in this study, I found that the extent of nuptial plumage is important in um, getting uh, a breeding territory. And also, uh, it's, it plays a role in um, interactions um, in, you know, defending the breeded uh, mm. territory. Yeah. Mm. So can I ask a little bit about how you do your research? Like, does this mean that, you know, you said that these um, purple crowned fairy wrens are found up in the sort of tropical regions in the Kimberleys. Yes. Does that mean you get to go there? Yes. And, and how do you do your studies? Are these, are these birds uh, active during the day? Um, you know, what's, a, what's a typical research day in the field look like for you? Okay, a typical day is uh, getting up before uh, the sunrise, so really early in the morning. Uh, then either... Just go uh, observe the birds uh, when they wake up, which is yeah around sunrise, um, and then. Um, so you just got your binoculars and a little notebook, or you yeah, got exactly. cameras, or how does? Uh, so if it's just for observations, I have my binoculars and a notebook, and I you know go to a territory and see uh, who I can see, what they are doing, how they interact uh, between mm. each other, uh, and when I did my experiments for this study, I went to different territories and then I had uh, so 3D printing models that I presented to the birds uh, and also cameras um, and um, a voice recorder just to record what I see. So 3D fake birds? Yes. And how did the birds respond to these 3D fake birds? Well, they... Where do you get a 3D fake fairy wren from? <laughs> we print it. Amazon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on a 3D printer. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, so we had like a um, taxidermic mount of a purple oh, right, fairy yeah, yeah. that was 3D scanned and then we could 3D print uh, cool. models. And then I painted them in the natural colors, but either in the nuptial colors, so with the purple and black um crown or in the dull non-nuptial mm. colors which is just brown and i wanted to see uh, if the resident males would react differently to the presence of these different intruders mm. um, and that's what i found that they were more aggressive towards um, intruders that had their nuptial colors right right now i'm curious as to there's like uh, dr crystal's question here but last year we interviewed jane goodall and she talked very much about when she was out in the wild you know the difference between her colleague her male colleagues at the time in just numbering animals and her approach of naming animals and it was that enabled her to look at some of the social context of those animals more effectively i mean how do you go about that do you just number these birds or are they, do you i mean how do you how do you 
track them with uh, there's such small birds i can't imagine a collar around yes. them. <laughs> that could be the way to go so we catch all the birds mm-hmm. um and we put unique combinations of collar bands okay. on their legs okay. yep. and that's how we recognize them using our binoculars right so we know each bird of this population and um this population has been studied since 2005 so mm. it's been a while wow. now um and it's really interesting because we know exactly who is who uh, do they have names? Like, so we call them like following the the colors they have. Right. So it's not like yeah, blue, green, blue. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Must be, but if you go back season on season, it must become like a reality TV show. For yeah, it's like you guys yeah. all must be hooked Ooh, on yeah. what happens next season. <laughs> yes, yeah. it's, blue, it's, green, blues, blue, blue, green. Oh yeah, yeah. 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 wasn't expecting that. that. <laughs> we select a supper prayer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like oh, this bird moved to this territory, and now it, he's with this uh, female, and you know this happened, and yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's great. Marie, look, this, this is fascinating stuff. It's really interesting to to hear about these little guys because I think everyone knows um, knows about these birds and they've seen them. If you've, oh, if I've you've never walked, heard of the purple headed, uh, no, not purple the purple, but you know, if you if you've walked outside of Melbourne, you know, by a few k's, you, you tend to see them, and they're just the most gorgeous little birds. I yes. think they're, they're fantastic. So keep up the good work, especially given this particular one, this particular species is endangered so hopefully um the work you're doing can help with that as well but it's fascinating to see how they how much social interaction and how much that is um related to these color formations and so forth so thanks so much for talking to us today on triple r and good luck with your phd for having me yeah thank you very much marie fan is from the school of biological sciences at monash university you're listening to a podcast from community radio three triple r in melbourne australia in the studio with us is dr andrew hill he is from the department of biochemistry and genetics at the latrobe institute of Molecular Science from La Trobe University. Andrew, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for having me. Now, you've been on this show before. How long ago was that? Oh, that must have been seven or eight years ago. So I'm just doing the calculations in my head. That's about 900 guests ago for me. Like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> so what did we talk about? <laughs> I forget. My, I don't remember last week. So yeah, my chances of eight or nine years ago is pretty bad. But you work... Um, in an area, and Dr. Ailey and I were just uh, saying we love this terminology of extracellular vesicles. Now, you're going to have to unpack that for us. What's it? It sounds like not a cell. Outside of a cell, I'm getting extra yep. cell, uh, not inside a cell, some kind of thing. It's some kind of, yeah, definitely <laughs> some kind of thing outside a cell. So. Physics guy doesn't know biology. <laughs> Tell me. So, um, yeah, the field is, is quite new, although we've known about these things for probably 50 years. So, um, and it's really a convergence of several different fields. So the term extracellular vesicle is used to describe particles that are released by all different kinds of cells from all different kinds of organisms. Um, So about 50 years ago, people studying platelets and how they play a role in blood coagulation described something called platelet dust, which Hmm. I think is a great term. Um, And this dust was outside of the cell and it had a function to help with that coagulation process. Um, And then about 30 years ago, researchers looking at... um, the maturation of blood cells found these particles, which they called exosomes, played a role in taking proteins that weren't wanted by the cell anymore and actually just getting rid of them. Mm. And then over the last 30 years, there's been a real boom in people studying what happens outside the cell. And they've identified various different sizes of these particles um, with various different roles. So extracellular vesicles is a collective term. It was coined about six or seven years ago mm. that describes all these kinds of particles that are released. So when, when you you say particles, I think you, you, you say something that uh, 
conjures an idea in my mind as a, as a person with a physics background, which I think is very different to what they actually are. I mean, I hear about particles and I hear about protons and neutrons and, and so forth, but, but you're talking about presumably quite large structures of these. I mean, how, how big and complex are these sorts of particles? I, I, I'm guessing there's a wide range. There, there is a wide range. So in terms uh, of a cell biologist, these things are actually really tiny. So, mm. But tiny to a cell biologist is much Huge larger from a physicist. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so we're talking about particles that are range from size from about 30 nanometers mm-hmm. up to uh, a few microns in size. Okay. So... Yeah. Obviously, they're a lot smaller than a cell because a cell releases many, many thousands of, of these. Um, so, yeah, they range in size from nanometers up to microns. And in terms of, maybe we'll just talk about the blood example for, for a moment. I mean, I can imagine there's a lot of stuff in blood. So I can imagine there's a lot of different types of these particles in the blood all doing different jobs. Is that is that right? That's right. So these particles, because they range in size, they range in size because of the different ways that cells actually release them. Some particles come from very specialised machinery inside the cell. Some of these particles are just leapt off the, the side of the cell. And even dying cells, so cells that undergo cell death, release a lot of these a lot of these particles. So circulating in the blood, you've got a whole suite of these these uh, particles, which is why they're called extracellular vesicles, mm. just to sort of encompass that whole range of different particles. So, so when, I, when I go to the pathologist and I get a blood test, are these particles used currently in that sort of testing or is that, is that we're not there yet? We are, we are really getting there. So these particles contain uh, things that are inside the cell. So they can be like a health card of... of the uh, cell from which they're derived. So they contain proteins. They also contain small genes as well. Okay. So if you've got a sick cell, it's going to have a different profile of proteins and genes to a, to a healthy cell. So if you can pull these things out of the blood, you can actually look for the changes compared to a healthy individual. And it's being used in cancer at the moment. Certain cancers can be um, diagnosed by mm. looking at the profiles of these proteins mm. and, and genes in the extracellular vesicles from the blood. So... Mm some brain tumours and also prostate cancer. There's, there's a lot of work and there's a lot of industry now around developing yeah. diagnostics. And what are you working on, Andrew? So what are you um, looking at out there at Latrobe in this area? So we, we got into the this field about oh, nearly 15 years ago, um, looking at how uh, some brain proteins that cause things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease, um, they misfold in the brain. And we were interested in how they can move, these misfolded proteins can move from cell to cell. And so we got interested in, these extracellular vesicles as a mechanism of transferring those from from cell to cell. So we've been looking at uh, the process of spreading these misfolded proteins, but also trying to develop some diagnostics around diagnosing these brain diseases using blood samples. So like for the cancer example I just gave, Mm. we're looking at profiles of small genes that are encapsulated in these vesicles from the blood that can give an indication into into the health of the brain. Mm. And in terms of the equipment that you use to do that, I mean, these things are small. So how do you, first of all, how do you find the stuff or is it like a big uh, cell milkshake or something? I'm not sure. (laughs) I always find it fascinating how, you know, physics person, I'll find you one. (laughs) <laughs> yep. you, you need a lot more. How do, you, how do you go about finding them, extracting them, and then what do you use to, to do the analysis? So, yeah, we, we need to use a lot of uh, um, different tools. And actually, the, the field of biophysics, which is a mixture of biology and physics, has been really important in revolutionising how we can look at these very small particles. You can't look at them using a normal microscope, so mm. we need to use an electron microscope, for instance. Um, and then we can use... Because we know some of the proteins that are on the outside of these particles, we can use that to, with antibodies to actually pull these things out of, out of the blood. Um, so we need to use quite a few 
sensitive tools. Also with the new DNA sequencing technologies, they're very powerful now for actually letting us look at what's in these vesicles. So we can, uh, I think, advances in technology that have allowed us to look at proteins and uh, genetic material more sensitively have really allowed us to look inside what mm. uh, the, these things and what they do. And I think one of the fascinating things for me, you know, is it, it's now a way of kind of answering some of those real big, big unanswered questions um, in biology because, you know, exosomes don't just happen in people. They can happen in plant cells. They can happen in um, the cells of uh, uh, disease-causing uh, microorganisms. I, I know particularly from my background that how malaria parasites use exosomes, you know, in the spread of disease is, you know, and, and is, is fascinating. So for, for me, I think there's some great examples and, and, and maybe, um, Andrew, you could, you could give us some more examples of how these are not just relevant for people, but throughout all of biology. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. So there's a lot of work going on now showing that um, these exosomes and other vesicles play a role in sort of health host pathogen interaction. So there's the malaria example where, where the, the parasite can induce the release of these particles containing um, parasitic proteins. Um, other parasites such as leishmania release these as well. Um, and there's a recent paper published in Science a couple of weeks ago showing that um, in response to infection with a fungus, plants can actually release vesicles with RNAs that actually try and turn off the virulence genes in these mm. uh, pathogens. So, you, you know, there's this cross-kingdom interaction Interaction that um, uh, these vesicles kind of are, are involved with, and there's a lot we don't understand yet. But actually, understanding how they play a role in intercellular communication is, is really important. It's interesting to me how we we tackle dealing with these problems when, as you say, they may have a de deleterious effect on the way our body responds, or you know, any organism responds. Is do you think the goal will be to go after the the sort of the architecture of the the mechanism, you know, in much the same way we look at the flu vaccines and so forth, or, or to try and bolster our systems to to deal with with you know the onslaught? Because often, you know, it sounds like um, in some of these cases, actually stopping the mechanism of the way in which they turn on or turn off parts of the immune system and so forth would be you know a, a damn hard but best way is it, I mean what's your feeling on that Andrew yeah I think it would be a really hard hard way um, mm. because it seems to be so ubiquitous this, yeah. and um, because they're so hard to um, to trap and to sort of manipulate I think that would be quite quite a mm. difficult angle but I think understanding how they play a role and perhaps how they might be involved in disease um, could maybe lead to some sort of ways we could tackle those diseases um, mm. but they do play seem to play a role in just natural health and that and they're they're in milk they're in we're drinking them in our lattes every day. So these things sort of exist naturally. And uh, a whole lot of people just, on, on somewhere in Brunswick, just coughed up. <laughs> what? Are you serious? Is it, there's not DNA and stuff in this, is there? People freak out. Um, there we go. Well, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating area. It's one that I suppose the, the changes in technology that you, you must be seeing, as you say, you guys have been working on this for about 15 years. You, you must have seen massive changes in their ability to do this, especially with things like SEM, scanning electron microscopes, being more environmental type imaging systems where you're not completely destroying these samples in order to image them. That, that would have presumably changed this game completely. Yeah, electron microscopy has been a real boon um, and, and even super resolution microscopy is now being well used as well as, um, you know, the ability to do protein profiling use, using mm. mass spectrometry, for instance, and, and also, you know, uh, whole genome sequencing. That's mm. something we couldn't do 
you know, too long ago. Yeah, and uh, ago. It's, yeah. it's really revolutionised how we can look at these things. So next time I see my pathologist, if I ask them if the extracellular vesicles are going to be uh, looked at in this blood test, do you think, how, how will I get a good response? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not yet, but I think soon. Yeah. That sounds great. Andrew, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us today. I think this is a, it's a fascinating area. It's one that, um, well, Dr. Ailey and I just love the word vesicles for some reason. We, we haven't been able to work it out. But um, it's a fascinating area and it's one of uh, those that, yeah, there's just so much complexity to it. I don't know where you guys know where to start, frankly. it's um, There's just so much information there that seems to be gleanable from this information. Thanks for chatting to us. Okay, thanks very much. Andrew Hill is from the Department of Biochemistry and Genetics at La Trobe Institute of Molecular Science at La Trobe University. Three. Triple. Now, Dr. Ailey, you have a uh, competition that you little climate scientists are running. We do. So I just wanted to let everybody know um, about a competition that's happening for National Science Week. So this is from the Australian Meteorological and Oceanographic Society. So basically all the nerdy little climate scientists and meteorologists and oceanographers in this country, we get together and have a lot of fun. Do the meteorologists and the climate scientists interact? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, because a lot of us have the same background, right? My background's actually in meteorology, but uh, then went into climate after that. So... um, and it's kind of, you know, all, all same physics, different, you know, areas different of the size. earth, right? And different yeah. timescales and stuff. Yeah. So so anyway, uh, National Science Week is coming up in August, as everybody's mm. probably well aware. But I'm so excited. I know. It's, it's almost National Science Week. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's an exciting time of year for us. But um, so the Australian <laughs> Meteorological and Oceanographic Society has put out a competition about presenting my local weather. So if you are a primary school aged child, a secondary school aged child, or have primary or secondary school aged children, or you know, interact with them in any way, um, tell them about this competition because basically this is um, where they get to make a two minute video presenting their local weather and they can go out into the elements, although be careful, don't go out in the middle of lightning storms and things people, please be safe um, and talk about their local weather and there are tips and tricks on how to read weather maps and how to um, present your local weather from a lot of this country's uh, most famous uh, television presenters, Nate Byrne from the ABC, Jane Bunn from Channel 7. They all give yeah. everybody tips and tricks. You can make your own two-minute video. They're due in by August 31st. Each state winner wins $200. Oh, wow. National winners get $500. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, go out and have fun. And you can find out more about it at www.amos.org.au. That sounds great. Yeah. I know so. some schools have even got blue screens in that setup or green screens. Yeah, well, exactly. And, and, and they can do the old, you know. Yeah. Front yeah, coming the in, whole, you know? exactly. Yeah. Make, put a map up, and this gives you the opportunity to do it as a classroom as well if you want to. Yeah. Oh, that'd be so, so Yeah, so have a look, uh, www.amos.org.au, and yeah. uh, there's a link to it and, right in the front And page. Dr. Ailey's got a good source of fake um, fake weather maps yes. that will really <laughs> cheese <laughs> off uh, meteorologists. Yes, but, that's right, because they're wrong. <laughs> yeah, because so, they're wrong. Uh, <laughs> gosh, anyway. Fantastic. But more news mm, yes. from the world of, well, let's go from meteorology to climate science. And this is, this is actually some... Old science, some very old science, but a new story about some very old science. Mm-hmm. A new twist on an old classic. It is, it is. And it's it's kind of a story that really almost turns the history of climate science on its head, Ooh. actually. Ooh. And it's, it's a bit of a detective story. It's come out in yep. the last uh, few months. People stumbled across this and it's really kind of gaining traction now. And this is the story about the greenhouse effect. 
So everybody kind of knows. It's not real? Well, no, it is real. But hang on. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. That's, whoa, whoa. <laughs> geez, I hope no one edits out no, that no, of no, audio. No, 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 <laughs> Uploads it somewhere. No, no. <laughs> that was Dr. Crystal, if you're wondering. Yes, yes, that wasn't. That wasn't <laughs> no, no, no. Sorry, I'll take that back. So, look, it is the story of the greenhouse effect, and I'm sure everybody is aware of what the greenhouse effect is. But just in case, let me go back over it. So the greenhouse effect is is basically where, um, you know, the, the earth emits heat, even though sometimes it doesn't feel like it, but it does. Mm. Um, and it, it emits heat and, and the gases that are in our atmosphere, some of them are really good at uh, basically trapping that heat, really good at absorbing that heat and then re-emitting it back to the yeah. Earth's surface. And that's things like carbon dioxide, methane, water vapour is another really good one. Um, but there's a whole bunch of these. And, of course, this is the problem. We're emitting lots of carbon dioxide into uh, the Earth's atmosphere. Gives us a bit of a thicker blanket, so to speak, and all of a sudden we've got human-induced yeah. climate change. Which wouldn't be such a problem if we didn't have something out there called the sun. Right, exactly. That that. Sun, cheese. Yeah. Oh, we're sending sun. that probe. That probe's going up. Yeah, we'll work right. out how to switch it off. <laughs> oh, dear. Turn so, look, the science of the greenhouse effect is not new, right? It was discovered over 150 years ago in the 1850s. This is not a okay. new thing to look at. The person credited with that discovery, maybe you can see where I'm going with this, was mm. a man named John Tyndall. And in 1859, Tyndall set up a really simple but really effective experiment. And it was super precise. Basically, he got a bunch of uh, glass cylinders, took out all the air, got an infrared emitting source, so a heat emitting source, put a thermometer at the other end and then put different gases through these mm. cylinders and basically worked out that, um, you know, if you had a heat source at one end, a thermometer at the other and a glass cylinder full of carbon dioxide at the middle, the thermometer was going to be cooler at the other end right. because the carbon dioxide was, was a, blanket. a blanket storing yeah. all that heat. So it couldn't get warm on the an insulator. An insulator, exactly, yeah. on the other side. And so, yeah, he basically drew conclusions about the influence of these gases, and he drew wider conclusions about what that could potentially mean. And so this is a direct quote from his paper. He said, such changes, in fact, may have produced all the mutations of climate which the researchers of geologists reveal. Wow. So uh -huh. basically what he was talking about was that all the changes... The climate that, record. Yeah, the climate record, yeah. the, what we call the paleoclimate record. So way back when, millions of mm. years ago, we knew it got hotter and colder. He was postulating that the changes of gases in this atmosphere is what caused that, right? Which is pretty cool. And, and kudos for being Absolutely. able to produce different gases. Absolutely. Back in 150 years ago. Absolutely. Like, that's hard to do. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, it's hard to, they do. Could it's do hard to do. Yeah, anyway. it is. It is. Yep. But of course, you know, these... Results are absolutely foundational to mm. modern climate science. We Fantastic. wouldn't we wouldn't have that without it. And, and well Tyndall, done, Tyndall. Tyndall was lauded for his work. Yes, well, but oh, so oh, he's, he's basically known as like the grandfather of climate. He is. Science. He is. And there is a centre named after him in the oh, UK, the, the Tyndall, Tyndall Centre for Climate Science. Is there a Tyndall curve? Uh, no, there's no Tyndall curve. But there is. Well, it's funny you say that because some people have actually argued that the greenhouse effect should not be called the greenhouse effect. It should the be Tyndall called effect. the Tyndall effect. Mm. Right. So there's been arguments for this. Mm. But but bow. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's become increasingly Hello. clear that, in second? fact, Tyndall was not the first person to make the discovery. Oh. Better yet, several science and historians uh, have independently stumbled across this and they've stumbled across a paper called Circumstances Affecting the Heat of the Sun's Rays, which was published in 1856. So this is three years before Tyndall did his experiments. Tyndall mm -hmm. did his experiments in 1859 and published in 19, uh, 1861. 1961, that's a long time. Mm. Um, and, yeah, the paper was authored by a Mrs. Eunice Foote. Uh -oh. So a woman actually discovered 
The greenhouse effect. Which could now become called the foot effect. The foot effect, exactly. Well, in fact, some so people have argued for that. what's Eunice's story? So Eunice's story. Now, Eunice was actually a really interesting woman anyway, but we won't go into that now. Um, now, Eunice was a, a fairly amateur scientist. Now, her experiments probably weren't quite as precise as Tyndall's, but she did the whole thing with the glass cylinders. And what she did was, in fact, put thermometers inside glass cylinders. She evacuated one, so it was a complete vacuum. Mm-hmm. She put what she described as common air in a another one and then and then damp air in another one so a bit more water vapor in it mm. she put carbonic acid which we know today as carbon dioxide um and she basically sat them out in the sun and out in the shade and she compared the evacuated tube so the one with nothing in it to those with common air damp air and carbonic acid or carbon dioxide so i like her experiment better because it uses light Right. Well, so Mm. she basically placed those thermometers inside Mm. and she measured the temperature, right, inside and outside. So more direct in terms of that effect. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So more direct in terms of that effect. And what she found was that all three of those chambers were consistently warmer. So the ones that had the common air, the damp air and the carbon dioxide were consistently warmer than the outside. Now, she also looked at things like oxygen and hydrogen and showed that there was really no difference. Mm. So it really was the, the air... The, the damp air with the, the water vapour, because water, water vapour is yep. actually a really strong greenhouse gas, mm-hmm. and carbon dioxide that made the biggest difference. Um, and difference by, I think it was, she did it in Fahrenheit, but it was, you know, like 104 degrees to 125 degrees or something. So a difference, yeah, huge 20 difference. 20 degree difference. So yeah. had she published her work? Would Tyndall yes. have seen it? Yes. So she published her work in, she presented it to the American Academy for the Advancement of Science, which is the big body in that day. She's from Washington, D.C., by the mm-hmm. way. Tyndall was from the U.K., mm-hmm. I should say. Um, she did publish it a couple of months later in the journal. Um, and she also made those same conclusions that Tyndall did. And I'll give you a quote from her paper was that an atmosphere of gas would give to our earth a high temperature. And if, as some suppose, at one period of its history, the air had mixed with its larger portion, uh, with, with it a larger proportion than at present, an increased temperature from its own action, as well as from the increased weight, must have necessarily resulted. In other words, same con- more carb- carbon dioxide, Earth would have got warmer, mm. right? So mm. it's the same conclusion. She did publish in a paper. Now, Tyndall, in his paper, says that he's never seen anything like this. He was the first to do it, right? Mm. There are a few iffy things about that. There's, there's no direct evidence that he ever met Eunice Foote or that he ever read the paper. But he, interestingly, he was friends with a person who presented this lady's paper, Eunice Foote's paper, at the American Advancement for the Academy of Science. For some reason, we don't know why she didn't present it herself, but she did. And not only that, Tyndall was the editor of a journal which published, republished a paper from an, the Amer- from an American journal that was basically the one before Eunice Foote's. Mm. They were on the same page. Mm. You know, oh, you yeah, got to yeah, read right. that one. Yeah, you're not going to see. You, oh, you keep skimming yeah, down. This is my area. You would see yeah. her journal, her journal article. So, look, best in, case scenario is that he skimmed it, didn't yeah. read it, went to the back of recesses of his brain, and subconsciously went okay. Worst case scenario, he actually stole the idea. But beyond beyond anything else, he it's simply not, wasn't first. So, yeah, it should, all yeah. the credit should be. Well, I mean, whether he did that or not. Yes. The bottom line is she was first and That's all right. the credit was, should now be given She was to her. first. Now, she did get the physics slightly wrong because she said it was the rays of the sun, right? She said it was the sun coming in that was warming rather than the, the, the radiation from Earth. But it's kind of semantics, yeah, you know? Yeah, I think, you know, see, it's interesting because as a physics person, I would, I would talk about where the energy started more. 
Yeah, sure, but it's, so, it's that you know, part of the spectrum. You yeah, know? So well, it's, yeah, but, yeah, it's, it's, but it is well, semantics, and I think it's a it's a quibble. Oh, you know, and the yeah, fact yeah, yeah. that she wasn't even credited. So, yeah, it looks like we have a grandmother of climate science, not a grandfather. Mrs. Eunice Foote. Eunice Foote? Mm-hmm. I like it. Yeah, it's yeah. good. Thanks, Mrs. Foote. Yeah, there should be a foot curve. Yeah. Make it happen, Dr. Ailey, like you're a climatologist. It. I like it. A foot effect. A foot effect. How's it spelled? Is it F W O T? No, F W O T E. Oh, well, makes just, it even better. I've just fallen off my chair with a lack of not surprise that yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. something discovered by a woman was later claimed to be the first thing by a man. Yeah. Anyway, it's great that there are people, science historians, actually yeah. looking to looking uncover this. this. Yeah. So well done, Mrs. Eunice Foot. Yep. Join the chorus of Jocelyn Bell and others <laughs> and amazing people who we've had on the show. Pity she's not still alive. You've been listening to Einstein and Gogo. We will chat to you again next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.